The folks at Rad Power Bikes have a lot in common with what we do here at The War on Cars. Just like us, they believe in a world where it's easier for more people to live life without ever having to own or drive a car. CEO Mike Radenbaugh, he talks about it all the time. He wants Rad Power to be the e-bike for people who are waking up to the fact that they don't need a car for every last trip. As North America's leading electric bike brand, Rad Power Bikes has affordable e-bikes for every kind of rider, whether you're commuting to work, running errands, or just getting some exercise. Rad Power Bikes are built for anything, and they're priced for everyone. Also, they're a lot of fun. So visit radpowerbikes.com to find the right e-bike for you or for someone in your life who wants to spend less time in a car. There are plenty of bikes in stock for the holidays, and shipping is free. Again, that's radpowerbikes.com, transforming the way we move and helping to win the war on cars. This is the War on Cars. I'm Sarah Goodyear. With me are my co-hosts, Doug Gordon and Aaron Napperstack. Hello. What's up? Well, what's up is that it is our third anniversary. This is our third anniversary episode, as a matter of fact. It's, it's a little late, though. Yeah, our third. We launched in September three years ago, so we are <laughs> we're a little late. Are we yeah. going to do anything like a romantic dinner or anything like that? I mean, what is third anniversary? I'm not expecting anything <laughs> well, here. We, we, <laughs> have make, we have to make it up to ourselves because we forgot our anniversary. So, yeah. yeah. Sarah, you didn't get me a gift. <laughs> Again? You forgot the second anniversary, too. <laughs> well, I guess it's a pattern then. Um, but, um, yeah. Mom, Dad, please don't fight. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, so, um, but... But um, yeah, it is our anniversary, and 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 I'm actually I am feeling pretty warm and fuzzy about the occasion this year because it does feel like the war on cars love is is growing and maturing. So as the um, official Amazon warehouse of the war on cars, I send out most of the stickers. Aaron filled in for me for a little bit. Yeah, but fun. I see the addresses that all of our stuff goes to, stickers and all the rest, and it's all over the world. And it does feel pretty awesome that there's this community of listeners who are sharing the podcast, discovering it for the first time, listening to it, getting something out of it, emailing us and engaging with us. And I'm very grateful for every last person who devotes their time to listening to us. It's amazing. So thanks to all of you. It does feel like our stuff, our issues are getting more and more mainstream. Like like the war on cars is really coming up a lot for better or for worse, yeah, as part of the culture wars more broadly, yes. yeah, you know, I, so we're we're in there, we're in the mix. We're we're definitely in the mix. As a matter of fact, there there was a, a little mention of some more on cars related stuff in one of our most venerable media institutions. A new report shows that the fastest growing form of electronic vehicle is the e-bike, which is particularly popular in cities. At this point, experts believe the only thing that could slow these bikes down are car doors. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't get more mainstream than Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. So good job, everybody. Yeah, nice work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's clearly only one way to open this episode now. Live from from New York, York, it's the War on Cars! (laughs) Okay, 
so here we are. We are we are not live, but we are in New York, and uh, we're ready to mark our third anniversary by opening the best present of all, actually, which is the voicemail memos from our listeners. Um, but first, we have a little gift that we'd like to give you. Here's to the men who do the manly things, like driving a pickup truck with a front grill so big you can barely see the kid crossing the street in front of you, with plush leather seating for five and a rugged bed for hauling cargo that's so high off the ground you can barely reach it, which is fine because all you carry to work is an iPhone and a cup of coffee. Oh, by the way, can you pick up the girls at field hockey today? And a truck built so big and tough it doesn't even fit in a regular parking spot. So, you gotta drive all the way up to the roof of the parking garage. And that's pretty inconvenient. Have you noticed how weird the weather is lately? The flash flooding the other day was crazy. Now, gas is $3.92 a gallon. It costs 100 bucks to fill her up. And that pisses you off. But you're not a selfish, entitled, adult-sized baby running errands in an $80,000 stroller. You're a man who does the manly things. So, you'll blame Joe Biden. Introducing the 2022 Chevy Inundator. Let's get real. Nobody needs it. What a relief to, to hear some, some real truth in advertising. Yeah, I mean, we've always wanted car ads to reflect the reality of driving, so this, that's very refreshing. Okay, all right, let's 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 get down to it. Listener voicemails here. First one, this one comes from, I guess, like Central Command of the War on Cars, Northern European Theater. Uh, here we go. Hello, the War on Cars. Danish bicycle mechanic from ladcyclen.dk here. I really love your podcast. You've very much changed my view towards e-bikes. I like how you talk about traffic violence rather than just talking about accidents. And uh, I also liked your uh, episode about the bike paths in Copenhagen, although there's still way too many cars around here in Copenhagen. Thank you so much for an amazing podcast. Wow, nice. Even Copenhagen? I'm, I've never been to Copenhagen, so I'm like kind oh. of bummed to hear that. You guys have been have there. Is been, that true? Been I've done, been to right? Copenhagen. Yeah, um, I like Copenhagen a lot, and I actually think for all the talk that we give about Amsterdam and the Netherlands, that Copenhagen, in many ways, has more to say about what's possible in American cities than some Dutch cities. It's got a pretty sprawly area around the historic core, the really wide streets, lots of drivers, lots of traffic, and the infrastructure looks a bit more like it fits in an American context. So when I rode around there, I felt super comfortable and felt like kind of you squint your eyes, you can see Brooklyn or Pittsburgh or any American city. Yeah. Copenhagen is one of my favorite places to visit. I've been a couple times now. And it, I, I totally agree with what you said there, Doug. It, it does actually feel like the streets do feel kind of American. Like you can you can imagine these really bikeable streets being in an American city, in part because there are a lot of cars. And one of the things that they do there that's really smart is they just they just really manage parking tightly. 
So, you know, if you if you don't have a place to put your car, it's basically pretty hard to have a car in Copenhagen. But people do have cars and they've designed streets in a way that when we were there for the summer with our kids, when they were only like seven and nine years old, they could both bike throughout the city all hours on their own bikes. And it was amazing, like the sense of independence and freedom that the little guy had, especially, you know, it was the first that was the first city he ever biked in. And it was really spectacular. You know, it bums you out when you come back here and you're just like, okay, now you can't do that anymore. I think early in the war on cars in one of our first episodes, we talked about Copenhagen syndrome, which is the feeling you get when you come back from a trip abroad and you have to deal with American infrastructure, whether it's trains or streets or whatever. Yeah. I felt it acutely when I came back. So anyway, thank you to Pele for, um, if that's how you pronounce his name, for, for, for the voice of, of Denmark what, there. What town was he from again? It says in our transcript, unintelligible <laughs> Danish place name. So I'm going to figure it out. I'm yeah. going to look it I up. I want to learn how to say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, It's definitely something I'm going to work on. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe by the time we have protected bike lanes in New York City. Yeah, I'll, get your Danish yeah. accent down. So we really appreciate the listener love. And the thing about love is that sometimes it, it does get a little complicated, especially as relationships develop and mature. And this next voice memo from Kristen in Boston, it, it asks a kind of delicate question. Hi, this is Kristen from Boston, Massachusetts. Um, just had a question for you. We used to have two SUVs. Um, since my kids started biking to school, we consciously got rid of one, but we still do have one. What are your thoughts on wearing a War on Cars shirt, but also owning a giant car? Um, I take the train to work, but I do drive the car at times. So is this a baby step or is it hypocritical? Appreciate your thoughts. Thank you. Oh, that is a great question. Thank you, Kristen. But I think before we answer that, we are going to hear a word from our sponsor, Cleverhood, with a little info about a discount. It's never too dark and rainy outside when you've got the right gear. That's why we here at The War on Cars all wear Cleverhood. Cleverhood makes rain gear for people who walk and ride bicycles. Their capes and anoraks look great and they keep you dry. And reflective details keep you visible when you're walking and biking at night. Cleverhood also donates 5% of revenue to advocacy groups working to create safer, more livable, and equitable streets in cities around the U.S. For 20% off of all of Cleverhood's gear, go to cleverhood.com slash war on cars. Enter coupon code HOLIDAYRAIN when you check out. The sale runs through December 31st. Again, that's cleverhood.com slash war on cars. Coupon code HOLIDAYRAIN. Good through the end of the year. Okay, so quick recap, Kristen from Boston got rid of one car, but she still has one huge car and she likes to wear her War on Cars t-shirt in the car. Is it hypocrisy or is it a baby step or is it a hypocritical baby step? (laughs) (laughs) I will just say I like it. I like it. I I think it's a huge victory in the War on Cars, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the world doesn't need another guy like me running around with a War on Cars t-shirt who doesn't own a car the world needs more car owners joining the war on cars. Yeah, I agree. And I and I think that wearing your war on cars t-shirt while you're driving your SUV 
And like, especially if maybe you're going to pick up your kids at something or drop them off and some other parents might see you getting out of your SUV, sporting some more on cars gear, just think of the conversations that that could start. Yeah, I mean, I think this is great because, right, like most of the country, it is not possible to go car free, but we can start shifting trips to other means, to e-bikes, to regular bikes, to walking. And if you can go down from two cars to one, that's a huge victory. That's a huge savings for yourself, all the money that you can spend on other stuff, uh, all the space that is freed up for other uses. So that's where we're going to win the war on cars. It's not eliminating cars. It's not the freak out over banned cars. It's reduce cars and the amount of times you use them. To me, that's the thing is there, there's this sense sometimes when people hear the war on cars or they see, you know, Hashtag ban cars, our favorite hashtag. There's this very like absolutist sense that like we must eliminate all cars immediately. And well, that's impossible. That's never going to happen. But why not hashtag ban cars on this particular road for a few hours? Why not, you know, a war on cars where you just wage war on one of your cars? <laughs> you, know, you, keep, you keep that one and you get rid of one. You know, these are like, yeah. it, these are incremental improvements, like just cutting down the amount of cars, cutting down the number of trips, um, starting to substitute trips in your own life from car to transit or bike or walking. That's good. That's yeah, also I mean, the war on cars. Kristen has reduced her number of cars by 50%. That's pretty, that's that's pretty darn good. So Kristen, we are with you. You are with us. And it's, it's all going to work out. And, and who has more credibility than a person who stands up at a meeting and says, well, I own a car, but I want my children to be able to walk and bike to school safely. That's great. So More yeah, of that, please. You get out there in Newton or Medford or uh, Somerville. I think she's in Boston proper. Cambridge. She's in Boston proper. <laughs> all right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, we're going to let Doug handle the, the, the Massachusetts accent. accent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was born in Waterford. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so our next voicemail concerns one of our Favorite bike lash talking points. Hello, War on Cars. This is Michael Owens. We know that there's a lot of success out there in car-free plazas and non-car transit, but every city all over the U.S. keeps having the same debates about loss of revenue for businesses, parking spaces, and yet the data is fairly clear that these arguments don't hold water. Why do we keep having to repeat this instead of spreading examples place to place quickly? We don't have much time to make this better. I like the urgency at the end of that question because I totally agree. Like we, we cannot have the same fights over and over again. This is a case where I think facts, as so often is, is the case, that facts don't actually make any difference. Data doesn't actually make any difference. It's about emotion, right? That, that people have an emotional response when things change. And this is where I think you need political leadership and you need, you need elected officials and planners to, if they've been put into office promising to have a certain kind of solution, that they stick to it and don't just cave in to the one guy on the block who's, who's making a noise. I think the best example is City Bike here in New York. When they launched City Bike in 2013, they didn't start with five stations and fight it neighborhood by neighborhood and have the same fight over and over again. They just said, we're putting in 200, 300 stations. This is how it's going to work. You can have some input over where that station goes, maybe this side of the street versus that side, but they just went big. And 
suffered through a few weeks of bike lash, and then it was a huge success. And I think the problem, you know, here in New York or where, where Michael is, where everybody is, is that city agencies fight the same battle on one street that they fight on the next street, and then they fight it on the next street, and there's no accumulated knowledge or wisdom. And they, they lack the courage to look at the people on the next street and say, yeah, the folks on the last street had the same problem. That didn't happen. And so now we are going to just do this. Yeah, but Doug, this is 8th Street. It's totally different than 7th Street. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So on 8th Street, we have businesses and residences <laughs> and people going to school. Right? Yeah. But that is what comes up in these Brooklyn fights. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just like your block is not at all like my block. It's like two blocks away. <laughs> but there's progress, right? Because like when I started doing this, I was noticing all the folks saying this isn't Amsterdam. And that we, we have actually <laughs> right. gotten to a place right. in New York where people really do say, well, that's 8th Avenue. That could never happen on 9th Avenue. I, I do feel like one of the really good tools in the toolbox, and New York was smart about this, um, about about using this is the pilot project concept. So when these things are just abstract, when it's just people fighting at a table in a in a church basement, it's really easy for things to get heated and emotional and just completely out of control. Like people's imagination just kind of goes wild or whatever other issues people are having with whatever other changes are taking place in the neighborhood, these things come up. If you just if you can get your city government agency to do a pilot project just put a test of the of the new bike lane of the new transit way whatever it is try a test do it with temporary materials do it cheaply and quickly do it in a way where if it doesn't work you can scrape it right off the ground and restore it to the car sewer it used to be um i think we found that that really helps allay these these community concerns and get projects built and let people see oh okay that wasn't the end of the world to like install some bike racks on this and, block. Yeah, and not only that, it creates a constituency for the infrastructure that's been installed. So now the Prospect Park West bike lane being a great example, you know, there are hundreds of kids and families and delivery riders and other people who use that lane every day of the week if somebody came along and tried to take it out, then you would have a fight, right? Totally. Because people see it and they like it and they use it. I also think you just have to work with like all deliberate speed. You announce a project, you install it quickly because there's this idea for congestion pricing. I'll put a link to it in the show notes that there's something called the valley of death. <laughs> like that the longer you delay implementation of a project, the longer NIMBY fears get thrown in, the more opportunities people have to file stupid lawsuits and you know exploit environmental review laws and all the rest. You just have to get the project in and like yep. you said, like get the pictures of people on bikes using it, of happy kids going to school, of delivery riders being safe while they're doing their jobs, and then it becomes much harder to take it out. And, and treat it almost like software. So it's like, here's version 1.0 of the bike lane. We're going to let people use it. We're going to evaluate. And then we're going to like fix it up you know, fix the bugs and do 2.0. I mean, that Prospect Park West bike lane, that was really like four iterations, I think, before it got to what it is today. You don't have to pour concrete immediately, but just get something on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Our next listener has a question about how differently we treat road safety from other kinds of safety. Hi, Warren Cars. This is Greg in Burlington, Vermont. I have a question about the differences that I see between occupational safety and transportation safety in the United States. For workplace safety, employers try to eliminate hazards as a first step, 
then separate workers from hazards, and as a last resort, they tell workers to protect themselves with PPE. This is opposite to the way that we approach transportation safety, where we are all told to wear seatbelts and helmets rather than change the system. So my question is, if we know that a systems approach works to improve safety, why haven't we used it for transportation? It's a great question. It's yeah. really good. Yeah. What Greg is describing is essentially known as the hierarchy of controls, right? Where you first, it's elimination, you remove the hazard. Second, you substitute or replace the hazard. Then what's called engineering controls, you isolate people from the hazard. Then administrative controls, where you change the way people work. And then finally, as, as he mentions, PPE. You give people you know, helmets on the factory floor or something like that. Um, and we do not apply that at all. We do not eliminate the hazard of cars from our streets. We just rely on individual behavior. And here's a seatbelt, and here's a helmet, and here's a reflective vest, and good luck, everybody. Right. And, you know, we, d we also don't do the kind of, you know, the stuff that they call Six Sigma, um, where, like, you know, General Electric will make all their factories incredibly safe with, like, you know, Six Sigma controls, where they, they kind of just go through and really... Um, closely identify all the things that are causing like injuries and fatalities and flaws and products and they sort of methodically try to eliminate the the sources of, of these problems like we know what the most dangerous things people are doing in cars are so like if you're driving your car in a way where you're like accelerating really quickly a lot or decelerating really quickly a lot or you're swerving a lot these are all things that they're like actual apps that insurance companies use to measure driver safety then the insurance company starts to know, oh, you're an unsafe driver. You you just, you do a lot of hard accelerations. You do a lot of swerving. These are things that we could actually use to start to identify drivers who are potentially more likely to crash. Well, we could also have things like speed governors, right? I mean, you could have cars that could talk to cities which is what everybody says they want, right? Well, it's like we have e-scooters that can do that now. Exactly. Yeah. Why Why do we slow down the e-scooters, but we think that a car that weighs many times more it should be allowed to be able to go 156 miles an hour or so? But I think even bigger, right, is that in factories where these things are controlled, where, you know, if the forklift operator is coming down, that there are rules, get everybody out of the way, and there's certain limits to what people can lift and all that kind of stuff. That was one through the labor movement, through unions. Um, it's all being dismantled now. Uh, but those that hierarchy of controls exist because people died, people sued, people worked to improve their labor conditions. And there, there isn't like a, a pedestrian labor movement, a pedestrian union that is suing cities for better safety. And it, it, sometimes transportation departments get sued when there's a known hazard. But I think in this American society of ours, we might just have to have like big lawsuits that force cities' hands. But they're protected in many ways too, so it's a problem. And and the fact is that our society doesn't care enough about the members of the society, and there's not enough, there's not like just a general atmosphere of like, we would like to take care and make sure that people live healthy, happy lives. That's that's just not an underlying principle of government in this country. I know in the Netherlands, when there's a traffic fatality, they do the same kind of analysis that we that we here do for for like an airplane fatalities. Right. You it's know, assumed that, that something terrible went wrong with the design of the street, or you know, unless it was like 
the most egregious thing you can think of, but the, the system the system works, and they do a forensic yeah. analysis. They do a forensic analysis that is designed to figure out what went wrong, so that then you can prevent it from going wrong the, wrong the next time. And you do that because you care about the next person who is driving down that road. Unfortunately, the caring part, the foundational part of why you do these things, is not there. And actually. It would be economically advantageous for our society if fewer people died on the street and fewer people were grievously injured and fewer people were suing each other over what's happening on the street, right? But you have to care about the people. You have to care about fostering a society in which people's lives are valued. And unfortunately, I don't see that here in the United States of America. That's my big thing with Vision Zero and as it's been applied in New York is that there's a lot of focus on individual intersections. Like someone died here and we need to fix this intersection. And my big thing is like, no, actually we need to fix every intersection like this because we know that an intersection with wide turns or you know vast expanses of asphalt, those are the things that lead to high-speed crashes. And we get so focused on chasing the last death and responding to it that we don't just take this systemic approach. And I think that's how Vision Zero has to work going forward. Well, and I, and I even like, I'm not even satisfied with just like looking at all the intersections. Like I, I would like to start to look at the vehicles themselves, yeah. you know, just look and the drivers. I mean, as long as we're going to have humans driving, like we really need to understand like, okay, this person is doing dangerous driving habitually, regularly in all these different locations. So that person is liable to hurt somebody, you know, in any one of these spots that he drives through regularly. Likewise, if, a, if we have personal mobility devices in dense crowded cities that can go 140 miles per hour with the flip of your foot on a pedal within five seconds you can be going 140 miles per hour. that is not that is inherently not an okay form of mobility in a city like that's like all the streets would be fine if we got those things out of the city well that gets to the hierarchy of controls where you have to substitute the hazard with something else. So let's have it all be e-bikes and cargo bikes and things like that that can deliver our Amazon packages instead of tractor I mean, it's trailers. all, and it's right there. It's like the new technology for personal mo mobility is kind of sitting right there now. And also, obviously, transit and old technology like bicycles. I mean, we don't need to live like this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and speaking of low technology and old technology vehicles that are quite efficient and useful... Amy in D.C. has some thoughts about a form of transportation that she doesn't think gets enough respect. Hi, Warren Cars. This is Amy from D.C., and I have really enjoyed listening to your podcast. And perhaps partly inspired by it, we recently bought an electric cargo bike that has been a blast and cut down on car trips. But the wheeled vehicle we actually use the most isn't a bike or a car or an electric scooter. It's a stroller. And because of the humble stroller, we can get to a huge number of places on foot or via the metro. But in urbanist circles, or at least urbanist Twitter, uh, there seems to be little attention devoted to this car replacement. There's no stroller shares in any city I've been to, no public stroller parking that I've seen. You can't even get on a metro bus without taking your kid out of the stroller or kids out of the stroller and folding it. So I guess I'm curious, are any cities taking the stroller seriously in their attempts to create walkable, livable places? 
And are any stroller companies taking their role seriously as serving as car replacements? If you have any thoughts on this, I'd be interested to know. Thanks. That's such a good one. Yeah, it really is. I mean, boy, I when I had a stroller age kid, I really loved my stroller. Like I had deep feelings about it. But it's true that, you know, if you have stuff in the stroller, because you can use it to carry your groceries or your supplies or whatever it is, um, you shouldn't have to fold it. It should be easy to get around with the stroller, right? Yeah, I mean, I my, my kids are not too far out of stroller age. My youngest is eight, so it's within recent memory that he was still in a stroller. And man, what a pain in the butt when the bus would come and you'd have to fold your stroller, pick the kid up, put a shopping bag on one arm, and get on the bus. And I get it, it's crowded and the space needs to be prioritized for everybody um, who needs it, but there are cities that allow you to bring an open stroller on transit. Um, I have a Streets blog article here that says Seattle. Uh, they changed their policy in 2015 to allow kids in open strollers, provided there aren't people with disabilities using it. Chicago, the CTA, allowed open strollers in 2003. Um, same criteria. It has to be in the space for people with disabilities as long as nobody else is using it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I guess it opens up a whole kind of set of questions of like, should we have transit where you can just roll on? Obviously, that's better for people with disabilities, but it's better for people with strollers or people with limited mobility that might not technically quali qualify as a disability. Um, it makes life easier for caretakers in cities well, if that, you can just roll everywhere with your kids. That's like the the Transmillennio in Bogota. Um, when when we went down to visit that, it's like all of the bus vehicles line up with a platform. So you're never walking up steps to get into the transit vehicle. You can really just roll on. And it did make it much easier for people in wheelchairs, people pushing strollers, people with like grocery carts. It's It was much, much better than what we have where like everybody has to walk up a set of steps. They also have like pre-fare, pre pre-boarding, you know, fare payment. So like you're not also not just like waiting in line to like pay on the vehicle. You pay you, before you get to the platform. Much, much better. Yeah, and there are transit systems around the world that have elevators going to subways as well so that, that you can actually, I mean, New so York So you don't have is, to do what you were describing, yeah, right, running exactly. down the stairs with yeah. a kid in your arm, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you guys remember, cause, so I guess we had we pushed strollers for probably like six years, yeah. two kids, like about two and a half years apart. And I remember like one of the things that was the most shocking about pushing a stroller was like the hostility you would sometimes get, just like, how dare you hogging up the whole sidewalk with your two kids on a stroller? And we even had one of those strollers where the kids were like vertically aligned. Mm -hmm. So we weren't even taking up that much space on the mm -hmm. sidewalk. But and my thought was always just like, you realize like the alternative to this is being in a freaking car, right? Like, like I'm, I'm only taking up the amount, like we are three human beings being incredibly efficient right now. Yeah. Do you really want me to be in a car? Instead? I also don't. And we're in Park Slope right now. I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for people who complain about kids and strollers in Park <laughs> know, Slope. Right? Like you, you moved here and you knew that this was like <laughs> right. the epicenter of that. So be quiet for a moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the other thing that Amy's talking about, I know so many parents who got radicalized into the war on cars only when they started pushing a stroller because the stroller is low to the ground. It's in front of you. Drivers are not looking at it. If they see you, they might buzz you too quick and you have to pull the stroller back. 
So, you know, there is this whole big constituency of people who might join the war on cars, like, because, look, you don't have to be a parent to join the war on cars, but, like, it doesn't hurt, right? Yeah, absolutely. But there is no stroller advocacy. There should be some organization. I, I also like the idea, I honestly, of stroller share. I'm really into this. Stroller idea. share is genius. No, because it was such a pain in the butt. Like, when we would go to the airport... You'd have to put the stroller in the back of the car. Then you'd have to take it out. Then you'd have to check it. Then you'd have to get it on the other end. You know where they do it sometimes is at amusement parks. Yes. Yeah, so it can be done. Amusement parks often have the best transit of any town yeah, around. Exactly, yeah. and walkable too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, here's another voice memo. This one is from Tom Lent from climateaction.center. And he wants to know if it's time to step up the intensity in the war on cars. Given the increasing frequency of disastrously record-breaking hurricanes, wildfires, floods, droughts, heat waves, and deep freezes, it seems like the war on cars is no longer a clever tongue-in-cheek phrase, but rather a national security necessity. I'm promoting e-bikes as my primary subversive act, considering e-bikes to be a gateway drug to get doubters out of their cars and liberated on two wheels. Can you suggest more subversive acts we can take to gain recruits to help us escalate the war on cars? Yeah, it does seem like we need to take more drastic action. Direct uh, action. I mean, you know, getting people onto e-bikes is a fantastic thing that Tom is doing. Um, whether it's subversive or not, now that we had it on SNL, like that's 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 a different story. But it's really helpful. Um, you know, there's plenty of stuff that I think you could do. Tactical urbanism to close down a street for an hour and show that the world didn't end. That that's not a bad thing to do. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess part of what I think you can do is just to talk about it without being embarrassed. And that may not sound like the most subversive thing, but I do think that a lot of people who, you know, recognize how dangerous cars are, are very careful to always be, you know, couching things in the most sort of gentle way possible and being really thoughtful and kind and you don't want to alienate anybody and sometimes I do think and and this was kind of the idea behind the name of this show right was that you just say it and you just say no SUVs are killing people you know cars ruin cities uh you know and and that can be very subversive when you do it in certain settings I find especially when you do it in places where people are quite liberal and educated and they know that this is true, but everyone sort of politely agreed not to say it. And yeah. then you say it. And if you're willing to do that, that's subversive, I think. I'm, I'm finding that people are also more willing to have that conversation in like the place that we live, um, which is very liberal and, you know, ostensibly wants to be like environmentally progressive and all that. But like, I found that these days when somebody's like, Oh God, oh, I'm sorry, I'm late. The traffic was terrible. Like why is traffic so bad? Traffic's terrible now. You know, there's all these conversations like that, that you have. And I'm just like, yeah, well th there's too many cars. There's too many cars like traffic. You know, they want some other answer. Like, is it the new bike lane on the Brooklyn Bridge that's destroyed all of the traffic in the region? <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, there's actually just too many cars. There's too much driving. And when I, I feel like it, that's a subversive thing to say. 
that I've started to say. I've just, I'm just trying to say things more clearly now about what I see as the problem. And what I'm finding is like people aren't getting super defensive about that. They're actually like really interested in engaging on that. Like, oh, oh yeah, too many cars. Like, totally. Like, what are we going to do about that? You know, you, you and then you can have like this other conversation. <laughs> I was also thinking just because in Tom's voicemail, he talked about people being liberated on two wheels. That a, a lot of times we talk about the solutions in terms of deprivation or our lives will be worse off with all the things that we have to do to deal with climate change. And um, you guys saw that video of the kids in Barcelona biking to school. Oh, there were like 75, so 100 kids so who good. do what's called the bici bus, uh, the, the biking bus that takes them, like it starts with a few kids, picks up a few more, picks up a few more, and then they just take over the whole street. Um, that's liberation and that's subversive climate action. And it's fun. And it can show people that your life can be better off, actually, if you take these drastic measures to change your lifestyle and change lots of people's lifestyles. And um, like I said, it can be this like weird little, I think using kids in that way is subversive because yeah. the, the grownups who complain about parking or having to drive to the doctor's office every day uh, in both directions, a hundred times a day, whatever it is, um, <laughs> they can't argue with those little kids who just want to bike to school. That's super subversive yeah. in my view. BC bus is such a good example because it's also, it's not illegal. And, you know, it's just a bunch of people deciding we're going to be the traffic getting to school in the morning and we're going to, you know, we're just going to do it on bikes. Yeah. It's um, like, it's like a, it's kiddical mass, right? It's just like, we're going to just take the street and say, we belong here and kind of screw you. But we're not saying screw you because it's kids and we don't want to say that in front of kids. And it's just joyful and fun. So more like that, please. The other thing to talk about is, you know, blocking roads the way that Extinction Rebellion and groups like that increasingly, I think, are using blocking highways. And there's a lot of controversy about that tactic because, oh, you're, you're hurting people who are just trying to get to work. How is that helping the planet? But I do think that that kind of direct action as well is one of the things that builds attention and builds awareness of the urgency of the situation because the situation just could not be more urgent. It's just an emergency. So we have to, I think we have to use the friendly subversion and, you know, and then we also, some people are prepared to do things that are, that are riskier and less popular. And, and I think there should be more actions like that as well. My favorite thing about the Extinction Rebellion action on FDR Drive, they shut down the highway, was the reaction from some people who were stuck in that traffic. And suddenly, magically, they all seemed to care about the harm caused by cars. They said, you know, oh gosh, you're really going to do this? Well, think about all the carbon emissions we're now spewing into the atmosphere because you made us late to work. It's like, oh, so you get it now. Like you see that cars are bad, right? Like cars are bad. Um, and so I think there's huge value as much as people were inconvenienced. I mean, that's the point of protest. It shouldn't be like, hey, we're going to protest, but like you can go on having brunch and you don't have to change anything about your life and you can drive your SUV from Queens to Midtown Manhattan. I, I like that it got people talking about, oh, so you recognize that cars create exhaust and we should do something about that. Thank you. Okay, that's our show. That's our show, folks. want to thank our... Musical director Nathaniel Goodyear. <laughs> Our special guest, Josh Wilcox. 
<laughs> well, that's it for this episode of The War on Cars. Remember, if you want to support The War on Cars, you can go to thewaroncars.org, click support us and join today. Starting at just $2 a month, we will send you stickers, other cool stuff, and you will get access to exclusive bonus episodes. As always, we'd like to thank our top Patreon sponsors, Charlie G of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, the Law Office of Vicaro and White in New York City, Drew Raines, Virginia Baker, and James Doyle. Special thanks to our new sponsor, Rad Power Bikes, and our old friends at Cleverhood for 20% off on the best rain gear for bicycling and walking. Go to cleverhood.com slash war on cars. Enter coupon code HOLIDAYRAIN at checkout. Sale runs through the end of the year. We have merch, including brand new Cars Ruin Cities t-shirts and stickers and a hoodie. Yeah, we got a new hoodie. Yeah, it's winter. All right. You need something warm. You got to cuddle up. Yeah. Check it out, thewaroncars.org slash store. This episode was recorded by Josh Wilcox at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. Our music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Designs. I'm Doug Gordon. I'm Aaron Napperstack. I'm Sarah Goodyear, and this is The War on Cars. <laughs> <laughs>